I was not only mourning the relationship and my partner, but also mourning the loss of self. And maybe during the relationship, I had self-abandoned, but also the breakup conversation was one that was really made to strip myself of my sense of self-worth and dignity. Like you said, it just left me with a sense of total questioning of myself, my identity. I made this decision to stay in this relationship for so long, knowing that it wasn't meeting my needs, that there were so many ways that we weren't compatible. And I was really shocked by my own lack of attunement to my own disappointment, because it is my responsibility to move away from situations where we have to sacrifice parts of who we are or abandon ourselves in order to survive those relationships. Successful no contact is when you don't need the other person to validate your loss, validate the experience you went through and get the quote unquote closure, which, you know, usually these types of events are catalysts in our own lives. And, you know, what can we learn and how can we grow is what really matters the most. This episode is slightly different from others on this podcast. My good friend Chandani and I are having an intimate discussion about both of our experiences of being in and eventually getting out of emotionally abusive romantic relationships. But rather than seeing this as something that happened to us, we talk about the lessons that we learned in taking ownership, what led us to choose these relationships in the first place, having the courage to walk away, and the joy that comes when you stop self-abandoning, seeking closure or repair, and start listening to your gut and surrounding yourself with people who reflect your energy and effort back. We talk about anger and grief, but also about loving and living life after. Hi, I'm Jasmine Russell, and this is Depth Work, a holistic mental health podcast. This is a space for those who love to dive into the underbelly, to revel in the mystery, question assumptions about what's normal, play in the both and, and honor the wide range of human emotion. As a complex trauma survivor, holistic counselor, and co-founder of a mental health training institute, I've learned that there is immense wisdom in our pain, and that what we call crazy is just what we are not yet willing to understand and explore. I'm so glad that you're here, so let's dive in. Chandani, welcome to the Depth Work Podcast. I'm so happy that we get to chat. Thank you. Yeah. So you and I uh, are here today to just kind of have an informal chat about healing after abusive relationships. And, you know, you and I have both kind of been through it. We have our lived experience with it. But I think what we both hope to be different about this conversation is that we both are people that really like focusing on our sense of agency and hope and healing afterwards. So, you know, I hear a lot of conversations around the internet, especially when we talk about abusive relationships that are characterized, and I'm going to use this word carefully, characterized by narcissism or narcissistic abuse specifically. I think that that term is so fraught for a lot of reasons. And as someone who's worked in clinical setting within psychology and mental health, I've heard that word thrown around a lot. I am very critical of things that get labeled as personality disorders. I think that there's been a lot of critique of that over the years. I also have noticed that we throw that term around to kind of describe just quote unquote toxic people. And so in this conversation, we're going to get super nuanced about it. 
I think just to open up for people, the term narcissism kind of refers to folks who may have an inflated sense of self-importance, a preoccupation with power, with control, success, feelings of entitlement, who may be exploitative towards others, lack empathy, have extreme sensitivity to any kind of rejection or criticism, the need for praise, and can be quite manipulative. And this, obviously, all of us contain some of those qualities, right? Like this all exists on a spectrum. However, I think that those of us who are deeply empathic, those of us who also have experienced high levels of trauma in childhood, can wind up in intimate relationships with folks who have some of those qualities, and those relationships can wind up being quite abusive. I think, you know, when we define narcissistic abuse, that can be defined as abuse around volatility, lack of empathy, humiliation, coercion, gaslighting, withholding. It can look like a whole lot of different things and, you know, financial control and abuse, like so many different aspects. And you and I will get into that, but just wanted to frame this conversation as in, you know, you and I both have absolutely no interest in either like analyzing other people or in being victims or, you know, feeling that we had no choice in this. I think both of us really, really recognize our sense of agency and control and what may have led us to be in relationships with folks who have some of these characteristics and that everyone kind of has a a role to play and some sense of responsibility. So prefacing with that, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I was just going to say, you're describing every New Yorker <laughs> like myself. <laughs> yes. Like phrase. And how many times have I been nasty to other people, you know, just on the subway? So, and, you know, who isn't career driven? And so I think my hesitation with the labeling is like you said, everybody has these characteristics. It's on a spectrum. But I think the key determining factor for me or the differentiating factor is, you know, does do all of those characteristics come with some level of introspection, taking yeah. responsibility, yes or no? And I think that's a really good way to do a, do a self-check because, you know, obviously I grew up in a family with some of that dynamic. And if you've grown up in that environment, you invariably adopt or absorb some of those habits or behaviors. And so for a person like me, who's so introspective, you know, there, there have been moments in my recovery where I'm asking myself, am I the narcissist? (laughs) And I remember I was in therapy and I'm still am. And my therapist said, you know, if you were, you, you wouldn't be asking yourself that question every day. (laughs) And I think that was (laughs) such a relief and paving for me. And yeah, I think I really like kind of moving away from diagnosing people or the quote unquote toxicity. I think everyone has toxic behaviors. I've certainly had my share in relationships too. So I really like that framing because I don't think we're here to blame anyone or play victim. It's, you know, usually these types of events are catalysts in our own lives. And, you know, what can we learn and how can we grow is what really matters the most. Yes. Yes. And these events have been huge catalysts for both of us, just coming into a sense of power and creativity and like life-changing in so many ways. So yeah. So let's get into it. I know that for you and I both, you know, 
a lot of people have shitty breakups. I think shitty breakups is a really relatable, common thing for a lot of people. But for both of us, there was this sense of, okay, but I get it, but this one feels different. Like this breakup feels so different. And it can be so hard to put your finger on what exactly that is. So tell me a bit about what that process was like for you post-breakup, realizing something here is totally different and off. You know, there's shitty breakup on one hand, and then there's good breakup on the other. And I've had lots of good breakups. And, you know, those have been characterized in my life as it's usually mutually agreeable. There's respect. You know, no person is being stripped of their dignity or a sense of self-worth. Even if one party is not in agreement or on the same page, the love and care kind of sustains through the ending. And this is maybe a rare event for most of us, but they do exist. I've experienced them. And they're not breakups that leave you completely crushed of your sense of worth. Maybe you're mourning, but it's you're mourning from a healthy place. It's not it's not completely debilitating. And I think for me, you know, when I have had a breakup that has been quote unquote toxic or really bad breakup or shitty breakup, it's been one where I was not only mourning the relationship and my partner, but also mourning the loss of self. And maybe during the relationship, I had self-abandoned, but also in the moments of the breakup, the breakup conversation was one that was really made to strip myself of my sense of self-worth and dignity, where things that had been in my mind resolved years ago were being brought back to the surface as reasons why, where my vulnerabilities were ammunition to hurt me more. And that's a very violent environment. And I think I think a, a, a bad or a shitty break, breakup is one that's violent. And I think when we hear the word violence or even narcissism or narcissistic abuse, the, the sen- sentiment is it's um, physical violence or it's very extreme. But, you know, something that I've learned in very recent years is this sort of covert or very hidden ways of emotionally manipulating someone and completely destroying them, uh, which I think is much more dangerous because you don't see the signs until the very end. And to answer your question very specifically around what was that moment where I realized that what I was experiencing was not something I had dealt with before. It was talking to friends and, and realizing that I'm just not being understood in ways that I have been before by them. I felt very invalidated in my feelings and my experience because I was sort of in shock watching this person I had spent so many years with just completely transform into a person I didn't recognize. And so there was that sort of, you know, invalidation happening by by the whole community around me. And then the after effects of the, you know, series, very few of them (laughs) break up conversations where I literally, I think this was during the pandemic. I sat down and I literally Googled, I was just broken up with. (laughs) I feel like I was, I was thrown away like garbage. I'm not making this up. Mm -hmm. I, I could not, I had never felt that way in my life before ever. And I just couldn't or didn't know how to seek help, what help. And I put that in a Google search and all the articles were, have you been a victim of narcissistic abuse? <laughs> <laughs> so, 
so that was the moment I feel, I wish it was like oh I was sitting in therapy and then I had this aha moment no I was like sad in my house alone crying in the dead of winter and I googled you know oh my gosh I feel like I was discarded like trash and then that kind of you know opened me up to things so I don't know maybe I'll pause here and ask you you know what was your sort of aha moment that oh my gosh this is something I haven't or I'm dealing with something else here Totally. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) That's relatable. I love what you said about there are a lot of breakups that actually are filled with a lot of mutual respect and kindness. Even if the breakup wasn't necessarily mutual, I have been friends with all of my exes prior to this. I was in three other long-term relationships before this last breakup. And those three, I am still friends with them to this day because there was so much kindness and compassion. And it doesn't mean we didn't, you know, say things we didn't mean or, or hurt each other in some ways, but Mm -hmm. there was still this element of moving through it together and being able to communicate afterwards and during and, and has led to some great friendships. I mean, I just went to one of my ex's wedding two years ago and it was really beautiful in this breakup. I think one of the things, so I went through a breakup two years ago, which is the one that I'm referring to here. And what was different was that it was incredibly sudden. It took me completely off guard I was literally, we owned a home and land together. We had a dog together. We'd been together for seven years and had plans to get married that year. And I was brushing my teeth and suddenly he just said, you know, I think this is a good time to tell you, Jasmine, that I want to be single. And it just floored me. And I had trouble comprehending because, you know, I was like, okay, well, what is it that you need? You know, can you, can you tell me like what it is that you're needing? He just kept saying like, I don't want any responsibilities right now. I just want my freedom. And I kept trying to ask like, okay, well, are you breaking up with me when you say that you want to be single? Like that's kind of the only way I know how to interpret that. And he wouldn't say that he was breaking up with me, but just said, I need my freedom. And I said, "I I want you to have your freedom too can you find that sense of freedom within our relationship or not? He said no, that he couldn't and needed to be single. But then he had the caveat of, I was already leaving for a trip. He said, well, when you come back, we can reassess. And I Mm. said, no, there won't be any reassessment. You decide right now. I want to be with you. But if you don't feel like you can find this freedom in our relationship, then that's that's it. And so he made that decision. I left. And I think really where the difference comes in is is not just the sense of suddenness, but it was everything that happened when we tried to navigate the actual breakup. He refused to kind of let me come back into the house to get my things. Everything was kind of on his terms. Anything that I asked for, it was refused. But I think the worst part of it, when you say like you start to question your sense of self and self-worth, and your story was that there was a, this, this was, I think was really it for me. I walked into my local coffee shop when I had come back after my trip to collect my things and deal with the breakup. Um, he refused to talk to me at all during that time period, except over text. And 
I went into my local coffee shop and the owner said, Jasmine, what's going on? Why did you break up with him? And I was so shocked and confused. But that was the story that then I had later found out that kind of went around the whole town. I lived in a small town. So it was like the the whole town kind of heard this version of the story where it was just, I broke up with him. I made this decision. And I don't think there's real, I, I had never been through something so painful with someone where you get suddenly broken up with. And then the story is that you're the one who did it. And so it was that that flip in the story, that total kind of questioning of like, wait a minute, there couldn't have been any misunderstanding here. Like, there's no misunderstanding. We, we were both there in the room when this decision was made. To this day, to be honest, still can't really comprehend how someone that you had lived with for so long, loved for so long, could treat you like hot garbage. Honestly, I use that exact same language. I was like, how could this person treat me like hot garbage and make threats and refuse to communicate and, you know, control the narrative. And I I asked for, because he called off our wedding. And so I had asked for you know, things like half of what people had given us for our engagement party and things like that, with the response being, after everything I gave you, no, I'm not giving you anything. And I, I couldn't, I mean, my jaw was on the floor. I couldn't. And when I say that you can look back in hindsight and say, okay, like there are signs of, of this kind of behavior, like I should have known. It just like you said, it just left me with a sense of total questioning of myself, my identity. How could I have made the decision? How could I have not seen this? How could I have made the decision to be with someone like this? How, like, I couldn't, did not compute in my brain. <laughs> and again, you know, I, I in no way, shape or form uh, mean to say, you know, every con- every relationship has its problems. I for sure contributed to reasons why we broke up. But it was in the breakup itself that kind of revealed, okay, something here is so different. And it wasn't until I spoke to you and another person who had been through this type of breakup and, you know, what gets labeled as narcissistic abuse that I finally felt like, you know, I I didn't, I still even struggle with the term abuse because again, it kind of gives this indication that you're the victim or that, you know, oh, I I fell for it or I'm, you know, whatever, things like that. And that's not how I feel about the situation, but it was suddenly like, okay, someone else has experienced this particular type of pain in intimacy with someone. And I can't thank you enough, you know, you and that other friend that I had who just really could understand that this was different yeah no well I'm so grateful that well actually we met before I was in my process we had met before you were in your process but I'm so grateful for this friendship and I and I remember I think a year and a half ago and we've kept 
in touch. And before you were even recording this podcast, I said, oh, Jazz, this is just like one of our conversations, except we're just <laughs> recording at this time. So I've been so lucky to have you, you know, over the years to talk to. I'm so glad that we're in a place where we can talk about it without crying. Yes. And- with strength and even laugh at the ridiculousness of the exchanges between us and our exes. Because, you know, for those who are listening, there were many, many, many months where this was not possible. The pain was like nothing I had experienced before. And I think I've gone through a lot in life, but this one was completely dysregulating, earth shattering, all the big words. And it, took, it has taken us a while to get here and sit in our power to be able to now analyze these behaviors and this treatment and to know that in a relationship, both parties can make a lot of mistakes. You, you have a moment to solve those grievances and perhaps you continue talking about it in a peaceful way and you resolve it or maybe you don't resolve it. But then if you do decide to walk away, you do so with respect. And as you know, I had experienced a lot of the same things. I also shared a pet with this person, which, you know, he said eventually was just a dog and wanted to do nothing with the, with the animal. A lot of my belongings, we were about to embark on a move to another country. All of my things had already been shipped. I never got the chance to retrieve my things. And I was also barred from making any communication or contact. It's as if the verdict was delivered. And then that was it. There was no space for closure or a conversation. I remember I had asked my my ex, we were friends before we started dating. We were part of the same community. I will get there. I will accept your verdict. Just give me a few weeks to deal with it because it happened right before the holidays, which are already a very sensitive time, mm-hmm. even if you're a happy human being. And I had asked for some time to grieve and be okay. And it's so ironic that the the day that the verdict was, let's say, delivered to me in a very unkind way, I said two things. I said, you know, we have a community in common. Can we please message this to our shared friends in a kind and compassionate way? Yeah. Later, I would find out that the message had been communicated to them, perhaps even before I knew it or mm-hmm. the same day. So that wasn't honored. And then the second was, can you not completely disappear from my life? Can you at least talk to me three or four times before we say goodbye? And I mean, this is a significant long-term relationship. And so something in my gut was telling me with the way the conversation or the verdict was being delivered that I think I'm about to lose access to this person. And I think that was very uncomfortable because just a few days before he had mailed me a present for, and and my dog a present and you know we were just a couple who has problems that knows that they have problems that they should be working on and so you know I won't I won't paint it as oh it was we were in the perfect relationship so I was so shocked I wasn't it wasn't surprising to me that it came to that because I think in any relationship you have the option to walk away but I think What you have to be mindful of is when you are in relationship with somebody and you make a unilateral decision, as you're entitled to, Mm -hmm. there needs to be a little bit of consideration about how Mm -hmm. that might land on the other human being, especially if you've been together for such a long time and you are, or so you thought were each other's 
worlds, right? And so it, it was very, it was violent in those ways, in how little I had been considered, how little my feelings or my well-being was considered. And I don't think anybody should go through that. And I don't know if that's, if necessarily you need to be a narcissist to be able to do this to somebody. I'm sure there are people who just don't know how to end a relationship or exit a relationship in honorable, kind ways. But regardless, I think it's not the way to do it. And then something you said about the narrative, really the need to control the narrative, which I also experienced. I had absolutely no say. I mean, I had to step away from a community of 30, 40 individuals that we had cultivated together because I just did not have my, my, I had two options, either survive and live or, you know, completely run myself into the ground, trying to explain my side of the story. I was focused on survival. So it almost didn't matter what he had told people, what people thought of me. I just completely cut everyone out and moved to a new job and a new opportunity and a new country. And that's the only way I could survive. (laughs) And you too. Yeah. Yeah, truly. I think that was one of the hardest parts for me was you can accept that someone uh, made the decision to no longer be in the relationship. That wasn't the part that ever bothered me. If a person that you love feels that there's something else that they need to go do or experience, that the relationship itself isn't fulfilling them, I would never want that person to stay. It was the the inability to admit that that that's what they were doing, that that's what he was doing, the inability to say, I'm breaking up with you and to do it in a way that had any kind of respect, that that was what made my chin drop to the, <laughs> the ground because I really did believe that with communication and with time and with healing, that we would always be in each other's lives. But the interesting piece that I think is the place where your and my stories kind of diverge is that for me, I asked for post-breakup. I was already going on this trip. So that was great. That was like the universe giving me a little (laughs) reprieve. It was like three weeks where I was already going to be away to grieve. And to your point, it's not just grieving the relationship. That I think was the easy part. (laughs) It's, It's grieving who you were grieving your entire life, the way that your lives were intertwined, the world, the future that you foresaw for yourself. But I asked for, you know, three weeks of no contact and then really wanted to work on building the communication and and all of that. And eventually found in the process of the breakup that any tiny request that I had, any little thing was a no-go. It, you know, it was like every aspect of it needed to be on his terms. And that's not something that's workable. And so eventually I, and I'm actually really glad that it happened this way because it wasn't just the breakup that made me stop self-abandoning and like realizing the ways that I was doing that. And I don't mean self-abandoning as in like, oh, poor me, I wasn't standing with myself or not setting boundaries. I actually think that self-abandoning and people pleasing and not vocalizing your needs and desires is also harmful to the relationship. Like that's a way that I was not showing up for the relationship. 
So it wasn't just that that helped me realize I was self-abandoning, but within the process of the breakup, one of the decisions that I made after about three months of really trying to meet him and seeing that every step of the way, it was not going to happen. You know, it was like, it was, it was a thing of like, stop expecting someone to see you who can't see you. Stop expecting someone to show up that can't, that doesn't have the capacity to show up for you. I finally got that. And in the end, I was the one who did request no contact. And I stand by that decision after many months of trying. And I think this is a big piece of the conversation in what gets labeled as narcissism or narcissistic abuse. There's a lot of folks that say no contact is the only way. And I don't believe that it's the only way, but I do believe that that was the best thing for my mental health because I don't think it would have gone well if I had continued to try and to take over responsibility for the repair when the other person is not willing to engage in repair. And I think that was a huge part of my healing was to recognize that that didn't mean that he was a bad person or that I'm a bad person, that sometimes there just isn't the capacity for repair and that's okay. Yeah. Well, in my case, I didn't really have a choice. Yeah. Um, was don't contact me. It's something that he asked me for. And it's not some, it's not as if I was, you know, messaging him every day. I think we had maybe, well, one was the breakup conversation, maybe another conversation where I could hear his phone buzz incessantly. And I asked him, because your gut never lies. And I said, have you, do you already have a partner? It was, I think, maybe like a week and a half after we had broken up. And I asked him, are you seeing somebody else? Is there somebody else in your life? Because I knew him to to be the person who was so intertwined and into our lives and so involved with me that it was hard for me to imagine that he would just have left without having something lined up. It's very weird to kind of say this, but that's just the type of person um, mm-hmm. that he was, he he never spent a lot of time alone, single, mm-hmm. let's say. And so I asked him that and he said, yes, but it's nothing that I can share right, right now. It's nothing yet. So he kind of not confessed, but I knew by the second conversation that there was already somebody in the picture. So I knew that there was such an urgency to just get rid of me like trash. You know, you, you're not going to leave a bag of smelly trash in your house, when you're done with it, you immediately take it out of the house. And that's exactly how I was made to feel. And then the third conversation was supposed to be about getting closure or having one last moment where we could see each other because the breakup was happening over distance. And then as the universe would have it, and life is full of surprises, I ended up getting a job because this was our plan for the last year and a half of our relationship to move together abroad for work. And I ended up getting a job exactly where he was in the same city. And so the third phone call happened to be a FYI. I have now found a job and I've been looking for a year. I've talked to my family and I'm going to take it because I actually quit my job to move with you. And now I have to re-prioritize my whole life because I don't have just single life plans and we were supposed to be together. So now this is the plan. I'm going to go ahead and take this job. And his reaction was really bad. 
because I think he he thought it was going to be so easy to discard me. And I think that's what people don't realize is that, you know, I think maybe this is my spiritual side is that our lives are intertwined and you have to treat everyone with love and respect, even if you don't align, because life is going to keep bringing that person in your universe until some but something is resolved or so I've come to believe. And so I think it was a shock to his system because now somebody who he knew he treated very poorly was going to be in his ecosystem, perhaps as a disservice to him, reminding of how badly he had behaved or, you know, whatever it was. And in that last conversation, then the verdict was, you know, you are going to suffer when you come here. You don't speak the language. I will not help you. Do not ever contact me again. To which I said, you got it. And I never did. So I didn't have a choice and no contact. But, you know, my sort of hesitation with like the rules and the guidances, first of all, I don't think there's very good resources about how to deal with this type of relationship and how to focus on growth. I think that how I translate no contact is just divest energy from trying to change an outcome or for trying to change a human being. And this concept of radical acceptance and accept what life has given you, accept what has happened, grieve it, and now focus on shifting your energy to something else because you cannot contact somebody and still be thinking about them all day. Yeah. And actually a part of this, a sign of a toxic relationship ending is the rumination aspect which I also experienced, you know, I think there were many months where for six or seven hours a day, I was constantly ruminating. What did I do? What happened? How did it get so bad? Why did this person treat me this way? Why didn't our common friends understand what I was going through? Why is this happening to me? How can I improve myself? What's next? I mean, constantly. And so I think successful no contact is when you don't need the other person to validate your loss, validate the experience you went through and get the quote unquote closure, which quite yes. honestly, there are these words and I don't know what they mean, but you know, just <laughs> a goodbye, like a decent goodbye. Don't hope for that because it's probably not going to come and just accept it and be grateful eventually with time. I think that happens, but yeah, my experience was different in that sense. It, it wasn't my choice, but you know, I did, I, I wrote a lot. I moved obviously to a new country. I had a new group of friends and really tried to keep myself as busy as I could. And, you know, those things are paying off now in my career and life, which I'm really grateful for, but it's not quite as easy. I think no contact, you can still execute it and emotionally be tied up with this human being when that's not really the point. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you spoke a bit to this already and, and we'll also, we'll get into the, the, the healing parts and like the life-changing wonderful parts like that come later eventually. But at first I'm curious, cause we both alluded to this a bit. What were the parts post breakup, uh, especially post no contact where, the rumination specifically was around the sense of self-worth because I think the impact of this type of breakup on your sense of self-worth is huge. I had never, never left a relationship feeling 
so horrible about myself and my, my decisions and my, like my life so confused. I think I had never felt that way before. And I think that's a big marker of, yeah, what makes this particularly so challenging. And also what were some of the things that you learned about yourself through that process of self-reflection and what led you to this relationship and how, how meaningful it was to get out of it? Yeah, maybe I'll answer the second question first, <laughs> which is, you know, it's interesting. There were so many moments in the relationship where I wanted to leave mm-hmm. because I didn't feel fulfilled. I didn't feel complete. I felt that, you know, our dynamic or our interaction is not healthy for either of us. And I had wanted to leave. But, you know, as with most couples who are are very intertwined, trying to leave a relationship, both a little bit younger, you know, this was a few years ago, I think I never had the courage to walk away from something that is not good for me. And I think that, you know, that comes from childhood and family dynamic. And, you know, I think this experience helped me understand my role in life in my childhood and relationships has been, I will accept the deficits of the environment I'm in. I will celebrate everything good that you bring to me because of course this person also brought a lot of beautiful, amazing things in my life. And I'm so grateful for those. But then there's this third part that says, well, I'm not going to be the one who leaves. I will fix it and I can fix it and I can fix it. And you know, this Being a fixer has helped me so much in my career and my profession where, you know, if this is whoever's listening, if this is resonating with you, if you're called in to solve every crisis with difficult people in a workplace or just any conflict between friends and you're coming and mediating, I mean, what a lovely gift to have, but it's a pause to stop and think about, well, how is this gift actually working against me in my personal relationships? And so I think that was the big realization for me. I think I'm still working on that because this is work in progress to know when something is not feeling good, when energy given is not equaling energy received, that you need to step away from that. And I think I'm still working on that. But I think this relationship was a catalyst for me to really embrace sides of me that I really love and focus on things I need to improve on because I'm also a very loving and involved human being. So it's really hard for me to be detached, but it's something that I'm working on. And then now the first question of the rumination part, right? I think when you're going through the breakup and in my case, I had been told what my deficits were during the breakup. So the breakup conversation was not this. I'm not happy in this relationship. I know we've tried to work on it. Thank you so much for the good things you brought to the table. But I want us both to be happy. I would like to step away from the relationship. Take as long as you need to feel better. That was not the breakup conversation. The -hmm. conversation was, you are bad. You have done X, Y, Z with maybe some spatterings of, oh, you're a good person. I want the best for you, but mostly just insults, all the mistakes I've made in the relationship and how I am not even worthy of another second with this human being. 
So when that has been the closure conversation, it's quite easy to take that and keep playing it in your head over and over again. And so in the beginning, it was that. And I think when you repeat that narrative in your mind again and again, because you have so much dissonance in this experience that you are playing everything to find logic. Like what you said earlier, Jasmine, right? You're you're trying to find logic in a situation that has none, but our poor <laughs> brains and hearts don't know that, that at the moment. So you keep playing it over and over again. And if you repeat these messages that are somebody else's messages that then become your messages because it's your voice that's repeating it in your own self, you start believing it. And so what I saw happen was, in the initial phases of shock and rumination and dissonance, these started moving into becoming core beliefs. Mm. Or oh, maybe I don't deserve a partner. Maybe I am, quote unquote, too difficult. Maybe this is just what my life is going to look like. I'm never going to love again. I'm never going to find anybody again. And so these become beliefs. And, and then in these moments, the trauma of childhood and other traumas before this, just everything escalates. And it's like these voices of support for this horrible narrative that you've built. It's like, yes, of course. Yes, that's true. Because look at your childhood. Yes, it's true. Because, you know, you're almost 40 and you're you're having to grapple with this. And then these core beliefs are supported by other traumas. And of course, you, one needs therapy, good friends, and a lot of time to then track out of those what become core beliefs. In my case, I never had these beliefs growing up. I mean, I, I didn't recognize that I had them. You know, the one that I named, which is I don't walk away from situations because I always feel that I can fix them. But I celebrate myself. I love doing things for myself. I'm very confident and outspoken and have never thought that these things were not for me. But I was taken aback by how much I let this get into my soul so deeply. And that was really hard. That's yeah. so relatable. So relatable. Everything that you said about, you know, I'm I'm used to dysfunction from early family life and, and I'm going to fix it. I'm going to be the one to fix it, to make it better. Even though you had moments of knowing that you weren't happy in the relationship beforehand. I would say for me, that was the biggest piece too, why afterwards it impacted my sense of self-worth so deeply was because I just was left with this feeling of I I'm I made this decision to stay in this relationship for so long, knowing that it wasn't meeting my needs, that there were so many ways that we weren't compatible. And I was really shocked by my own lack of attunement to my own disappointment. I'm someone who I I do this work for a living. And I think in many areas of my life, I have kind of, you know, my ego got used to the idea that I'm good at shadow work, right? Like I'm so good at shadow work. I know how to, how to feel the hard, difficult feelings. And yet throughout this entire relationship, I was completely disconnected from my anger, my disappointment, and my feelings of betrayal and neglect in the relationship. What I think was so interesting was that everyone on the outside really kind of believed that him and I had a really great relationship. We were 
always kind of giving the illusion of it, uh, of, you know, we're working on it. We have challenges, but we're working on it. And we were going to couples counseling. We, we had, you know, quote unquote, good communication, but I was swallowing and absorbing so much. And I was so loyal to this relationship. I wasn't paying attention to how I was really feeling because I think it was too painful and too familiar for me based on my childhood context that I was so loyal and committed. It was almost this feeling of like, there's nothing that he could do that would make me step away. I, I wanted this. I never questioned how much I wanted this relationship. We were in it for the long haul and it was a blind loyalty. And so in the end, it was this feeling of how did I not see this? How could I let myself be treated this way? Because like I said, it wasn't just the breakup was when the, like the way that I was treated was the worst that it had ever been. But there was only one moment in our relationship that I finally, that that crack in the veneer of it's all fine. I can fix it. We can work it out. I'm fine. I don't need that much. I'll just stuff down those needs, you know, all of it. There was only one time that that cracked and it was during COVID when I was going through autoimmune treatment during COVID and I was really ill and the treatment was making me even sicker. And I, you know, told him that I would be in this treatment for about two months, but wasn't sure, you know, if I needed to be on it again or whatnot. So there was uncertainty there. I asked him if he was willing to be a bit more careful because I was at a higher risk because of my autoimmune disease. And I wasn't expecting him to kind of, you know, like stay with me the whole time or take care of me or things like that. But his (laughs) response was, I'm going to go to Florida with my best friend when I come back, if you're concerned that you might get COVID with your autoimmunity, you need to find another place to stay because I'm not going to be displaced from my house, my house, right? And, and I did. That's the part that I'm angry about is that I did. I did do that. I found another place to stay. I was angry about it, but not as much as I should have been. You know, the self-respect that I have now would say, I would never let someone treat me that way. That would be grounds for a breakup immediately. But that was both very normalized in our relationship and something that I decided to do to stay within. And that's one example of many. And so coming out of that dynamic with someone of just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and, you know, sure, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Like the permissiveness, that was it. It's not that this other person treated me so badly and made me feel so bad. It was, I allowed myself to be treated that way. And I can have compassion for past me and know where those tendencies came from, right? My father was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, which again, was I'm very critical of that as a mental health diagnosis, but his behavior was really quite similar. It was something that was so familiar to me that, you know, the other person gets to dictate and control the circumstances, the narrative, Um, has all the power and I have to just kind of navigate within that dynamic and try to survive within that and get little bits and pieces of what I might need or desire. Um, But the rest of the time had to kind of 
stay silent or quiet. And so I can have compassion for that in myself. But really, (laughs) the process afterwards was me going, oh my God, I thought that I was a competent adult. And like, honestly, the hubris and the pride behind this for me, I think a lot of people have this false belief that, you know, oh, this would never happen to me. Only people who are, you know, X, Y, and Z go through this kind of abuse, right? There's like a lot of stigma and shame around it. I was ashamed for a really long time. And I had to both navigate the taking that responsibility because it was my responsibility, is my responsibility to move away from situations where we have to sacrifice parts of who we are or abandon ourselves in order to survive those relationships. And also find compassion for myself to really understand what put me in the type of, you know, state of mind and being to even engage in that kind of environment for so long. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really impactful example. And I always forget that we also share that in common (laughs) is our autoimmune problems. And, you know, I have to say, I think that if it is of any help at all, is that, you know, surely there's a side where you accepted behavior that allowed you to shrink just in the name of saving the relationship and somehow making sense in your head that, oh, maybe my partner doesn't have an understanding of health issues or, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm being too much. And the mental gymnastics that we do. But I think also on the other hand, the the part of it that's ours is our relationship to good health and our journey with illness and how not just this partner, but society has made us feel about being born relatively healthy and then enduring a lot of these health issues that, you know, neither you nor I benefit from or want to have, or they're quite frankly an inconvenience to my brain and my soul and my heart. And so it's something that I deal with on a daily basis and keeping up the enthusiasm and always seeing, you know, the positive gifts that life brings on a daily basis. And I think sometimes we pass on that empathy and love actually that we have for ourselves because, you know, living with an autoimmune disease is not easy. There are moments when I had Lyme's disease, as you know, When I have chronic fatigue, I lose my balance. I can't get out of bed. There is nobody that I can be mad at. It's something that I have to live with. And my grieving period as I get older shortens. Every time I'm not well, I just bounce right back up. And it's almost that I'm managing on a daily basis the healthy Chandani and then the unwell Chandani. And I'm, again, playing that mediator, making sure the two can get along without getting into a fight or unhappy. And sometimes I've found myself giving over that empathy and love to a person external to me who maybe has to deal with it, whatever the consequences of illness are, once or twice a year, and then to not stand up and say, no, actually, I will be coming back to our house because this is the first time I've made this request in a year. And even if you are that person who needs to make that request on a daily basis, I think about, well, if I had a partner who had a health issue, there would be nothing but love and compassion. 
Yeah. And so why do I choose somebody who doesn't? And so I will say this, you know, the partner that I've referenced in this conversation was quite understanding and empathetic of my health issues, which is what kind of drew me to him. Because my partner before that had literally said, I cannot imagine a life with you because you are unwell. You hold me back. And I don't want that. And that was really hard to hear because, you know, where's the love and compassion? And it's something that I had shared with him getting into the relationship. And then we went to couples counseling to see if that's something that we can work through. And he very blatantly said in therapy, I do not feel empathy for her or her health issues. And it's interesting that you named this health example as a critical point when you knew something was broken, because I think in all my relationships, that has been the marker. So when my ex-ex mentioned this in therapy, in my head, I thought, there's no getting around this. Empathy has to be the foundation of the person I'm with in general yes. and also given my health issues. But again, I stayed. I, I wasn't the one who said, well, I don't want this because I want somebody who's going to show me love and compassion when I'm yeah. feeling unwell. And then similarly, actually, with this partner that I mentioned in our conversation, during the pandemic, I had completely torn my ligament and I was in a boot. And I remember him telling me, you're not really injured. But at that point, the dissonance that he was building in the pandemic was so extreme that I can remember back to that. And he said, well, you're not really injured. And I told him, I said, I'm in a boot. I have scans and I can't walk. I have crutches and my leg is black, blue and black. And he said, well, I've had many sprains before. This is, you're just using your illness to get me to do things around the house. And, you know, I presented the facts, you know, the ones that I just mentioned. And I remember I got up and I felt so broken and sad. I think I'm pretty sure I was silently crying. And I got up and I cooked us a meal because in my head, I thought, okay, well, yes, I'm injured. He doesn't understand that. It's the pandemic. Maybe he feels overwhelmed. Why don't I do something nice for us? <laughs> so, you know, I can think back to these examples too. And there is a part of me that says, no, you should have put an end to it. And I didn't. And I don't know how to reconcile that besides what I mentioned before about realizing that if energy given is not energy received, I need to divest into something else. But I also really love that about me, that I can be so loving and caring because I have amazing friendships. I have two dogs that I absolutely love and they love me. And I have this amazing community of support. And, you know, the good side of being so empathetic and loving is that you nurture this community around you that really shows up and lifts you. And so I try to see the duality of that without giving myself too much of a hard time, because I think we've already gone through a lot and <laughs> in perpetuating the misery. Yeah. Yeah. The self gentleness with that is so necessary. You know, what's interesting about the physical health stuff is that. So for me personally, I believe that a big part of my autoimmunity and, and there's a lot of folks that talk about this now, finally, you know, Dr. Gabor Mate and other folks who really, you know, understand that some chronic illnesses or the exacerbation of chronic illnesses is also in part manifested through the shoving down of anger. And I think part of why I was so 
ill at that time, it's not like, you know, suddenly I'm, I'm not anymore, but it was so much worse back then because I was constantly shoving down my anger and disappointment and despair because it felt too threatening to listen to that. Because if I did listen to that, then I would have left the relationship and would have been threatened with abandonment. But the trade-off is that I abandoned myself by not listening to that anger. And now I have such a better relationship to my anger. I understand that anger is trying to help me, support me, you know, show me when, like you said, my energy that I'm giving to something is not being reflected back. I mean, now it's kind of so much easier to not engage in the game of any of it because, you know, immediately when I notice like, oh, I'm not receiving what I would like to receive in this situation. I've clearly communicated it. I've asked for it. It's just not working for me. I don't even go into, you know, why, why aren't they giving that to me? And what does that mean about me? Or what does that mean about them? They're a bad person or I'm a bad person. It's just like, oh, yeah, no, I, this isn't for me. And it doesn't, I don't have to even think about why things aren't the way that I would like them to be. I just put my energy somewhere else. And I have so many people that can hold me and show me so much compassion and consideration. I mean, the things that I look for in the people in my life now are, you know, consideration for others and shame resilience. Because I think Bernie Brown is the one who really links this. The qualities that we describe as narcissism can often be reduced to a lack of shame resilience that kind of creates all kinds of relational issues. And so now when I'm considering who I desire to be in relationship with in general, it is the people who have the capacity to sit with their shame or guilt or any of it. And that when they, you know, do something even unintentionally that might hurt another person, they can own it and they can also set their own, you know, boundaries. And there's just a level of clarity there that's so different. So I'm really thankful for that aspect of it, that I can now really listen to my feelings of disappointment and anger and hear them and say thank you to them. Yeah. And I think that anger is so multifaceted. So I have no issues experiencing anger or frustration, what's hurt anger. So if I'm not being heard or being considered, you know, with partners, I've definitely had bursts, outbursts of anger that I'm not very proud of. And for that, I'm thankful for them naming what it is that I need to work on. And thankfully I've worked on it. And so I don't have those anger management, anger outburst issues, because quite frankly, I didn't have good examples of how to process anger. I think not all of us are provided that it it starts very early in childhood through really solid parenting and watching adults around you modeling it for you. But I think I still struggle with that deep anger and disappointment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of friends who've heard my story will ask me, well, you must hate your ex or you must feel really angry. And I don't, and I don't, and I think something is wrong with me that I don't. And we're trying to work through it in therapy. It's like, I just don't feel angry. I feel sad. I'm disappointed, but I'm not, I'm not angry because I don't, maybe briefly, it felt as though something was taken away from me, but what was given me back 
by my own efforts, by my new community, my old solid friendships, a new country that I moved to. They're just so much more than what I started out with that when I look back, it's it's just gratitude and happiness. Of course, I would do away with the pain of having to go through <laughs> something like that. But everything that I've received now is just so abundant that I wouldn't change anything. And I think that's the goal is to, you know, coming out of bad experiences after having some time to grieve. I think everybody goes through a little bit of feeling of loss of self-worth, having to make new life plans, basically reset your whole existence, right? Especially if it was just delivered to you without advanced warning it can be completely destabilizing. But I think that at the end of the day, the goal is to, you know, pick yourself back up again and try to build back better. And I think that it's possible for most of us because it does lead you to create this criteria for new friendships and for new lovers and for new partnerships. And I think that's that's beautiful. And, you know, the two or three things that you mentioned, my addition to that would be, I am really focused on mindsets too. So I teach, as you know, I teach innovation and human-centered design. And I teach this concept of mindsets. It's just known in this field of human-centered design is that you can either have an expansive mindset or a reductive mindset. And so expansive mindset is you think sky is the limit. Reductive is when you say, okay, but here's the reality. And I think parallel to that, you can also have people who think from a place of abundance and people who think from a place of deficit. And I'm really focused on surrounding myself with people who think from a place of abundance, especially in the workplace, because sure, these types of behaviors and individuals exist in our personal lives, but at work too. And for me, that's been a very solid marker of the type of person that I'm dealing with is, are you if you want to get something done, are you being intentional about how you get it done? Are you considering feelings? Do you have good emotional regulation? Are you spinning narratives and stories about people? Is that where your energy is going? Or is it going on just creating a place of psychological safety and trust? And so, you know, if you kind of narrow this down into mindsets, even without reading all the psychology books, <laughs> It's super helpful. So I think, you know, that's another thing that's a gift from this experience is that not only does your personal life get better, but you you choose more intentionally about work, who you surround yourself with. And that's amazing because work is eight hours of our day, at least if you're working in the US and have a regular job. And so it's really important to find happiness in those hours too. Oh, absolutely. And I think what you spoke to, speaks a lot about values also. You know, I kind of used to believe going back to both of our thing about like, we can fix it, we can save it. I I used to believe that compatibility in relationships wasn't that big of a deal. Like if you really loved each other, you could make it work. And now I don't really think that anymore personally. I'm not going to say I'm right because I, you know, I only know my own individual experiences here, but now I know what I value so much more. And I can see in hindsight how the value differences between me and my past partner were so vast in a way that I couldn't even really decipher or assess and ways that I tried to rectify or reconcile that just couldn't be. And 
Yeah, value differences. It's it's not about sameness. It's not about surrounding yourself with people that are the same as you or believe what you believe in. But I I read somewhere, maybe I can like find the article somehow and, and link it below. But there's a few qualities that really show some success in relationships. And one of them is whether or not you match on the quality and the value that you place around consideration, like considering others, how considerate you are. And so it's actually quite possible for two people who are, you know, low on whatever the scale is around consideration and considering others. It's totally possible for those two people to also have a super successful relationship and for people who are very high on the scale of, you know, how considerate they are towards others to also work really well. It's when the you have someone who is high and someone who's low on that scale together that it doesn't really work out so well i think that's kind of a crude a bit reductive way of saying it but i think values here is is huge it's absolutely huge no i think and i think also something you said about well if you love each other that should be enough and it's i not. think it's not and i think where people like you and i have to be careful is it's also not our job to quote unquote, fix something or fix yes. some. And I have a really good friend and she will always say, you know, which I don't think is her original quote, but you know, when people show you who they are, believe them. And I have certainly struggled with that. And I remember in the midst of in my last relationship, my partner told me twice that he thinks he's a sociopath. And my reaction to that was, I think it's just the pandemic that's messing with you right now. I think you're fine. If you truly be, believe this way, we should talk to a therapist and let's figure it out. And I mean, that's the extent to where I was back then. I think if somebody told me that now, I would believe them and leave the next day or that moment. I think people who have high empathy, power of observation, it's good to just observe and sit in your power and peace and not be so at service to others all the time. And I think for me, that's, it takes a lot of work, but, but it's also something, you know, we should practice in our daily lives and also in, in a relationship because it's also not disarming the other person in the relationship, because sometimes there's this dynamic of when you are the fixer and when you are solving and trying to dissect everything and showing up as the mature settled person, well, that can be really upsetting for the other partner too. And it can make them feel that they are inadequate or they don't have something right. So, you know, despite the type of partner you're with, I think just that type of self-awareness is healthy in any relationship too. Absolutely. Because yeah, being in that role is also really detrimental and harmful to the relationship for sure. One of the things I really had to admit to myself, this actually came up in a, in a plant medicine ceremony for me where the medicine itself kind of brought to my attention that I was addicted to trying to be loved by people with these qualities, with you know what gets labeled as narcissism. I was addicted to trying to get someone to love me through my actions, through how, how much I could endure of their behavior, through how much I could do for them, how much I could prove my worth to them. And naturally this did not, this is how I knew like, okay, this is a me problem. Like I was doing this, not just in my relationship life. I was doing this 
in my work life. I was attracting collaborators and work partners who kind of, I, I was trying to receive something from them, like validation or empathy or whatever it was that they never promised to me, that they didn't need to give to me at all. So this was, you know, my, this was my thing. This was like, you know, you could call this, Freud calls this repetition compulsion, right? We try to like play out our old developmental traumas. You know, if we couldn't get one of our caregivers to see us, to understand us, to validate us, to be there for us, to show up for us when we're sick, to, to, you know, do whatever, we naturally want to heal that. And yet I noticed that I was seeking out exactly the archetypes, so to speak, of people with traits and behavior that simply could not and would not give that to me. And it was really in this ceremony, although I don't, I'm not going to say that that's the only method or the only way to do that. There, there are so many ways that we can do that and gain that kind of self-awareness and break that, you know, quote unquote addiction. But that was a really powerful realization for me as well. Yeah. I'm curious, do you, do you feel that you have an addictive personality in general? You know, not really. This was really one of the, I think that's why it took me so much by surprise because addiction stuff doesn't really run through my family at all. My grandmother, you know, smoked a pack of cigarettes for like years and then quit cold turkey. I did the same. I used to like smoke because I thought I was cool as a teenager and then just like would forget that I have them. I've never become obsessive around substances or people or like things in my life that never really played out in any other area of my life. But what did run through my family and my ancestry, right, is emotional abuse. And, you know, my mother married someone who has these qualities and these traits, my father. And she told me once when I was 15, she said, you know, it was like, I woke up after being married for 11 years, I woke up and looked at the person next to me and didn't recognize them at all. And I had no idea how I wound up in this relationship. And she, I think she had quite a similar relationship with my father that I did with my ex in certain ways. And when I was 15, I kind of decided like, whoa, that's my worst fear. That's my worst fear to wake up next to someone and go, wow, I don't recognize you at all. And of course we manifest exactly what our worst fears are, right? <laughs> so that we can heal and learn. And and I did. And I'm so fucking grateful for it. So grateful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that I do think life keeps giving you these gifts until you have received and embraced them and said, thank you, I'm done. But yeah, I mean, I think obviously it was such a hard experience for me. And I know you and I'm grateful we had each other through it all. But, you know, something that I didn't mention before that I think is really important for me. And I wonder what that's like for you. But I, one other realization was, as I've been in these relationships with individuals that have, you know, narcissistic traits, or just a very not healthy relationship with 
anger or shame and deficit mindset, now I'm kind of grouping it all together, mm-hmm. is that they will always name what they point as your weaknesses are probably your greatest strengths. Yeah. And I've really started to listen to that. And I'm in a place where if someone says something to me that's unkind or is attacking my personality or character or skills or abilities, it's reason for me to pause and think, hmm, why are you going there? Why there and not somewhere else? Mm-hmm. And then I explore that and I invest in it and I realize, oh, in some ways, these individuals are so easy once you do your research and you know what you're dealing with that I think if you've gone through this experience once in your life, you will be able to know what situation you're in. This is not to say you won't attract that experience again or be another one, but you'll be in a place where you have all the tools and resources you need, not just to survive, but thrive. And I've really started listening to what those things are. And, you know, I have very tangible examples. I had a partner once, you know, I don't come from a family where education was something we did. I mean, I think I'm the only one in my family who's legitimately gotten a master's. I went to Columbia University and I was partnered with someone and I had real, I've always been good with numbers, but I had a lot of insecurities about writing. I could just not express my ideas on paper. And so I remember with this, you know, one of my exes, we were having a disagreement about something. And there was the time that I was in grad school and he mentioned, he said, well, out of nowhere, this was completely off topic. And he said, you know, we'll see if you even pass your, if you can even graduate from Columbia University. And I just, I thought about that and I was like, huh, I wonder, I wonder why he is saying that. And I think, you know, when you have a chronic disease, it makes you a natural fighter. Mm-hmm. And so I just completely invested a lot of time and effort. You know, I ended up getting three A pluses that semester. I'm now a professor at Columbia University. The other partner told me, you know, you're going to move to a brand new country and I'm not going to help you. You are going to struggle. You are not going to survive. Three years later, I had a job that required me to speak in Spanish. I have a beautiful community here. I speak Spanish now. I write songs in Spanish. And so in some ways, I hate when these things happen, but I'm also so curious about what life and what I can give to myself and what's about to be unlocked. It's almost like you know, the game of life and I'm going to unlock the next level. And I'm so excited. I'm sad. I'm sad that I'm going to suffer and there's going to be pain and tears. But on the other hand, what is this experience going to open up for me in life? Because, you know, life is about exploration. Life is about a balance of happiness and sorrow. I don't think anybody has it figured out. I can't say I've gone through this one experience and now I have a PhD on the subject. No, have I? (laughs) completely resolved all of my issues that I carry, no. But I do know that I'm never going to allow myself to be in survival mode ever again. Yes. Yes. I I know that, you know, you have built such a beautiful life for yourself now too. I'd love to hear more about that piece for you that 
is like, what opened up for you after that breakup? Like what, what did your life, you know, beautifully morph into with effort, with work, with, you know, endurance, but yeah. What, what kind of excelled for you? You know, it's, it's interesting. My weak spot that I didn't know was a weak spot was my childhood trauma. And I never really told any of my partners about what I had endured. I always had a very bad relationship with my own health. So when I was sick, I would get really panicked about being unwell. I would feel like an inconvenience to myself too. And so when you feel that way, of course, you can understand why you are a quote unquote inconvenience to somebody else. And so what changed for me was I really abandoned shame around expression of any kind. And when I'm unwell, I have the best time. I had to do a little bit of mothering myself and parenting myself through the process. And I think those two factors really kind of transformed my life. You know, I started writing. I'm I'm writing a book. I teach. There's a lot of, you know, I'm doing this podcast with you. I don't have fear and or shame about self-expression. And, you know, I didn't know how, how miserable I was, quite frankly. I remember when I would see, you know, really happy people who are very expressive with their joy and smiling, it would always trigger me because I'd be like, oh my God, like you are just too much, like, please, you know? And I don't know if that was like my curmudgeonly New Yorker or what that was. I was just not... I don't know why other people just expressing their joy so openly felt like over the top to me because I felt that that was never, that that's fake, that that's not actually real. That's not real joy. And it wasn't until I was in a culture and community that really, you know, embraces that joy that I started feeling really good, you know, dressing better, really enjoying my body and celebrating you know, whatever the gifts that I do have. And I, I I don't think I had that before because on the one hand, I had partners kind of like reject me because I gained two pounds or five pounds or because I was ill or because I was, there was always something. And I think it's what you said earlier about the self-rejection. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of changed for me. And so, you know, what life looks like now is if I'm in an unhappy situation, or a job, at least I've at least I've attained that level, is if I'm unhappy in a job, I will leave it. If I'm being surrounded by or receiving behaviors that are not uplifting me, I will reject them or walk away. So there's been positive changes like that. And, you know, on a very sort of tangible level, I, I live in Bogota with my two dogs. I have a beautiful apartment. I have a house in the Hudson Valley. And, you know, I'm looking forward to moving back to the States. So it's it's all very nice. And you know, I've fallen in love and which after something like this, the first year I was like, oh my gosh, I never want to love anyone. I'm never going to date again. (laughs) You know, you're just protecting. You want to be in like a safety box, just completely safe from future damage. And I'm happy to say that, you know, I'm not there anymore. I'm really happy. And what about you? I mean, it's also been so lovely to see you thrive. Yes. What is your life like, Jazz? Oh my God. So much better than I ever thought it could be. I mean, 
you know, the dream and the future that I was building with my past partner, I think was also a beautiful dream. I stand by it and loved what I was building then. But like I said, you know, post breakup, it actually really surprised me how I did spend, of course, a good time grieving, a decent amount of time grieving. But very quickly, very quickly, I had this sense of this is all happening for me. Like it wasn't, you know, I'm not a Pollyanna, like everything happens for a reason kind of person, but I certainly believe that we can turn everything into a massive opportunity. And for me, this felt actually really quite destined. Again, I don't believe that everything is, but I had such a strong sense of certainty. And this, it's like this feeling of like, when you jump off a cliff and then you you feel like you're falling and it's absolutely terrifying and then some wind picks up underneath you and you have no idea where that wind is going to take you or bring you but you don't really have another choice but to trust it and to trust yourself and your instincts and your own wisdom and your own inner compass and where those winds brought me was you know I was already on a trip during that breakup to Prague, which is a place where I go to write and I love. And it had been on my 10-year goals list forever to move to Berlin, which is very close to Prague. And so I was like, well, I'm already in Prague. I might as well go find a place to live <laughs> near Berlin. <laughs> and and I did. And I mean, oh my God, the community that I have here, the people that I have here, the home that I live in, my apartment is beautiful. I never thought that I would have a space like this. I'm now in graduate school in a school that I had wanted to attend since I was 19 years old. I'm at the Berlin School of Mind and Brain for neuroscience. And now, you know, I I don't like to talk about my current relationship at all in reference to my last one, because how beautiful this relationship is has absolutely nothing to do with what has happened in my past. However, you know, I, I healed so much in that relatively short time period and went from, like you said, just being terrified of love and relationships and having some stuff I needed to work out there my own relationship to my sexuality, to how I wanted to date. And it was amazing. I met my current partner here and this relationship, like everything else in my life, is so much more beautiful than I even believed was possible. I look at my old life now and I think, you know, I had a glass ceiling. I had a pretty low glass ceiling on what I thought was possible for myself. And I don't think other people would have seen that, you know, other people saw my life and my dreams and goals and were like, wow, you know, you're really shooting for the stars. But I think in my own self, in my own body, I was putting a cap on the amount of joy that I could experience. And now, I mean, it's, so much higher. And that takes a lot of nervous system regulation to be able to sit with joy, especially as trauma survivors. We have other episodes on this podcast about that, about like foreboding joy and how joy can be kind of intimidating or scary. But yeah, it just, everything is different and so much more incredible. And it took a lot of work, absolutely, to to get here. But that trust now is something that I really try to stay mindful of 
because I think that trust was key. Yeah, it's interesting when you said the fall feast, there's a quote that it reminded me of. It's maybe a cheesy reference, but it's from Neil Gaiman from The Sandman. And it says, sometimes you wake up, sometimes the fall kills you. And sometimes when you fall, you fly. (laughs) And I think that's what happened to us. And so, you know, congrats to us both to be able to do that because it wasn't easy. There was there was definitely a long time where I thought I would keep falling and that there was no end to it. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation and that our lives are so different now and that we had each other. Thank you so much for being a huge part of my story. You, your life experiences and your wisdom I mean, oh my goodness, it's a privilege to know someone who loves as deeply as you do. Thank you. And you too. You've been with me through, you know, my recovery journey, whether I'm traveling in Mexico or Europe or the Hudson Valley, you're always a phone call away. So thanks so much for that. If you found this podcast useful and want more in-depth research practices and tools, I have a subscription to access all bonus content here on Spotify for a few dollars per month. I produce this podcast all by myself, and that is the best way to show your support and help me keep it running and available to everyone. It would also mean so, so much to me if you left a rating or a review to get this in front of more people. I also have a parting gift for you, a 15-minute guided holotropic breathwork practice for trauma healing. It's gentle, short, and super effective, by far my favorite practice that I still do on my own every single week. The link is in the description below. Thank you so, so much for being here, and I'll see you next time.